Hi, I'm Copthorne MacDonald, and this Wisdom Page podcast episode is titled Freedom. Its content is adapted from Chapter 11 of my book, Toward Wisdom. Wise people are said to be free, but just what does that mean? And what about will, choice, and responsibility? Existentialist Hazel Barnes said, Freedom is possibility. I agree. Yet there are different kinds and levels of possibility, and because of that, different kinds and levels of freedom. There's what we could call intrinsic freedom or ultimate freedom. I'm thinking here of wide-ranging possibility, possibility limited only by physical laws and available physical resources. I'm thinking of the things that could be done if enough human effort were focused on the task. World peace is an intrinsic possibility. So is freedom from hunger for all the world's people. And so is a quiet, alert mind. There is also what we could call psychologically limited freedom. Here the range of possibility is much more limited, usually a tiny subset of the intrinsic possibilities. I picture human freedom as a huge pasture, The pasture represents the full range of intrinsic possibility, the potential range of human freedom. The high fences that surround it are the fundamental, uncrossable limits of possibility. But individuals and societies don't have the run of the entire pasture. All live within much smaller corrals inside the big field. The corral fences are not prohibitively high, They can be climbed by individuals and moved around by the concerted efforts of groups of people. While in place, however, they do limit individuals and social groups to much less than the run of the ranch. Many of these corral fences are mental fences, psychological fences. The limits they represent are the mental limits to freedom set by our attentiveness, by the values that run our frontal lobe's decision-making process, and by the information accessible at a given moment via perception and memory. Freedom is possibility. In a similar vein, Arthur Kessler said, free will is the awareness of alternate choices. I agree with this statement, too, as far as it goes. Kessler's definition recognizes that we are unfree to the extent that we fail to understand what the intrinsic possibilities are. We are unfree to the extent that we are ignorant or deluded. Yet there is more involved here than just information and perspective. Also involved are the internalized values that guide the choosing process. Many smokers are aware that not smoking is a possibility potential choice in some abstract theoretical sense. Yet these people are not able to make that choice. Their present programming says smoke, and they do. The quote, free will, unquote, of these people is not free enough to allow them to say no to smoking. They see the range of options, but at this moment are not able to choose the non-smoking option. Going back to our pasture metaphor, we could say that the mental corral fences come in two types. The first type is insufficient or misinterpreted information, ignorance, delusion, not seeing the options. 
The second type is the fence of internalized values and goals, our programming. This fence can keep us from making certain choices even if the brain is aware of them as abstract possibilities. The existentialist, psychologist Benjamin Libet, and personal experience all agree there is such a thing as conscious choice. Yet conscious choice is not free in the sense of being totally free from all influences. Decision-making, like other forms of information processing, involves information inputs, value-based processing of that information, and information outputs, the products of that processing. Our actions at this moment are determined by the instructions our mental, physical, executive process gives to the body at this moment. That decision is based on something, perhaps a thorough analysis, or a cursory analysis, or an intuitive hunch, or an ancient brain impulse. If we are torn between two equal choices, it might even be the noise in the system that tips the scale. But decisions don't come out of an informationless vacuum. They are based on or caused by some array of influences. There is, therefore, an instantaneous determinism, a determinism of things as they are at this instant. You and I know, however, that things will not be the same in the next instant. We might perceive something we do not now perceive. We might get new information. Our brains might process the information we already have in some new way and arrive at a new conclusion. We might have new insights into what is going on, and those insights might alter our internalized values. Our default choosing system the bottom of the hierarchy of methods is the automatic, reactive, ancient brain choosing system that tends to get us into trouble. When that system is controlling, the hardwired survival values call the shots and determine our choices. Conscious choice, although not free from all influences, is a much more holistic choosing mechanism than reactive choice. It uplevels the choosing game. Conscious choosing enters the picture at the level of intellect-based choice. The intellect can veto the various decisions to act made by that unconscious reactive process. If our internalized values are ones that call for a veto, and if we are attentive enough, the values upon which decisions are made at this level include internalized cultural values and values acquired or developed through personal experience. At the third level, consciousness, intellect, and intuition all take part in the choosing process. Intuition appears to have access to more data than the intellect and to, quote, wise, unquote, values as well. In making intuition-based decisions, the intuitive process often takes subtle and peripheral data into account. It even seems to rank or weigh different factors according to their importance. The rational mind has trouble doing this. Have you ever tried to weigh rationally the pros and cons of two possible jobs or moves or relationships? Not only are there many factors to consider, but they all differ in relative importance. The intuitive process, however, somehow weighs everything and comes up with the needed decision. The process output at times is often deceptively simple. Just a yes or no feeling. Go or no go. 
How do wise values become implanted in human beings? How is it that they are present to guide people in their best moments? There seem to be two possibilities. First is that we pick them up from our culture along with many other values and selectively sort them out of the mix as we gain life experience. The second is that we were born with wise values already embedded in our collective unconscious and they arise and start to run things if and when the ancient brains and the intellect quiet down and get out of the way. Carl Jung was convinced that the intuitive process had access not only to recallable memories and the contents of the personal unconscious, but also to the contents of a collective unconscious, to the full range of humanity's archetypes. Philip Goldberg wrote, To Jung, creativity and intuition implied a direct link between the conscious mind and deep archetypal structures. The archetypes have the power to confer meaningful interpretations to experience and to interject into a given situation their own impulses and thought formations. Intuitive people, said Jung, can perceive the inner processes and, quote, supply certain data which may be of the utmost importance for understanding what is going on in the world, unquote. In Jung's writings, there are references to a variety of intuitive experiences, all attributed to the stirring of the collective unconscious. Maslow's theory holds that if we manage to meet our deficiency needs, a new value will arise from the subconscious realms and become a conscious motivator. Become wise. Once that value is firmly in place, something very special happens. We set off on a search to find out what this crazy game of existence is all about. We explore and assimilate data. Then one day, we find that our choices have become more intelligently determined. Why? Because the seek wisdom value is a master value that causes us to reassess our total array of values. With that value in place, the corral fences that limit our freedom start moving back, and we begin to browse in that larger pasture. Our actions are determined by something, as always, but they are no longer determined as much by delusion and by drives such as greed and fear. They are determined instead by what is, by the situation, by reality, and by the values implicit in a holistic perspective. At that point, guided by what is real and desirable for the whole, our actions come into harmony with the larger process. We become free to choose the sane way, the wise way, and the loving way more of the time. Those fortunate individuals who acquire this master value and somehow manage to find support for their growth toward wisdom discover that in the far reaches of the process the uncomfortable, reactive, need-to-be-free dissolves comfortably in commitment. They find a commitment of effort that harmonizes their nature as a person with the needs of superordinate systems. The self-actualizing, self-transcending person has gone beyond the need for that narcissistic, I'll-do-what-I-want-when-I-want-to sort of freedom. 
that has vanished with no regrets in the act of appropriate commitment. These people have discovered something important. The most meaningful freedom in the universe, as well as the most meaningful creativity, is connected with bringing the high values of being into actuality in the phenomenal world. Goethe put it this way, Freedom is nothing more than the opportunity to do what is reasonable in all circumstances. What about responsibility? Who is responsible for what? There are two definitions of responsibility that interest us, and they sometimes get confused. There is responsibility in the sense of being able to choose right rather than wrong. Moral responsibility. And there is responsibility in the sense of being accountable. Let's first address the responsibility for choice meaning. Doesn't each person at each moment do what his or her brain mind decides is best at that moment? Each person's actions are the body's response to a complex data manipulating process involving internalized values, remembered information, programmed desires and aversions, and current sensory input. The body acts in whatever way this total process decides that it should act. Our seeing is limited, and a bunch of less-than-ideal, evolution-produced, family-produced, society-produced, circumstance-produced information and values end up determining what the action decision will be. Because of this, Responsibility in the moral sense does not strike me as a helpful concept. Given the process by which decisions are made, isn't everyone morally innocent? Isn't an attitude of forgiveness and compassion the only rational attitude to have about human actions? Obviously, people who are programmed to destroy cannot be allowed to run amok. But that is a different matter. People are still responsible in the sense that they are accountable. But we can stop being moralistic about it. It's just a question of what is best to do in a given set of circumstances. What course of action will maximize future harmony and minimize destruction? The problem is not one of getting people to act more responsibly. It is one of helping them to see more deeply. For when they see, they will act responsibly. For this to happen on a large scale, we need a culture that encourages people to become wise and supports them in that effort. Seeing that we are not as free as we thought we were needn't depress us. Paradoxically, there is even something freeing about seeing the extent to which our choices are determined. For one thing, we can stop feeling guilty about not having enough willpower to realize our fantasies. We can replace the missing willpower with realistic, positive steps. We can put into place those kinds of reinforcing and motivating structures that will keep us moving toward our goals. The problem stops being an intangible, will-o'-the-wisp thing. We no longer have to keep reaching for bootstraps of willpower that aren't there. All we have to do is arrange our lives so that we have enough exposure to positive influences, influences that promote and reinforce the kind of changes we are trying to make. Simple and infinitely easier. 
there is no I who has to struggle, no impossible levels of self-discipline that must be maintained. The influences just do their work, and the earnest effort comes naturally. Another plus is that compassion becomes simply rational. We see that everyone is doing the best they can. Also, the way to up-level the world process becomes clear. Help create supportive environments and appropriate influences. Concentrate on basic needs, information, and motivation. People whose basic needs are met and who are exposed to the right influences at the right times in their lives will be motivated to become good people. That ends the Wisdom Page podcast episode titled Freedom, adapted from Chapter 11 of my book Toward Wisdom. Thanks for listening, and check out the many wisdom-related resources available on the Wisdom Page. It's at www.cop.com. I'll spell that out, www.cop.com. Bye for now.